consider with me for a moment the great sport of baseball, a sport that has been labeled for a long time America's pastime. Imagine now trying to explain the sport of baseball to someone who has never heard of it before. Imagine just how difficult that would be. Think of how many rules there are in baseball. Rules that we probably couldn't begin to explain the reason or or origin behind the rule. For example, why are the bases ran counterclockwise instead of clockwise? Why does it take only three strikes for an out but four balls for a walk? Even the basic rules have a sense of randomness. Imagine explaining the infield fly rule, that is, if you even know it. Uh, The rule states that if a batter pops up and can be caught with reasonable effort by an infielder and there are less than two outs and there's a runner on first and second or first, second, and third, then the batter is automatically out. To someone who didn't know the sport, this rule would seem quite arbitrary. However, if you know baseball, you know that the intention of this rule is to prevent players from intentionally dropping fly balls to create an artificial double play situation. So while at the surface level, the rule may seem arbitrary, the truth is is that there is great logic behind it, and the following of the infield fly rule creates a fairer game. Much like the infield fly rule of baseball, God's rules, especially concerning sexuality and marriage, may seem arbitrary, but in reality, they reflect God's goodness and they are for our good. The seventh commandment reads, You shall not commit adultery. When we think of the word adultery, we typically only think within the context of marriage, and we think specifically of the act of infidelity. And while that is certainly an application of this text, and perhaps the main application, it's not the only application of this text. Before we explore the range of applications that this command holds, let's think about the reason for the command. Like we've already said, the word and law of God is not arbitrary, but is designed for our good. So then, what is the basis for the relationship in which this command seeks to protect? What is the basis for a one-man, one-woman relationship? First, let's look to creation. And in looking to God's design and plan for marriage, we can see the basis for why marriage is monogamous, that is, one man and one woman, and also why it's heterosexual even, one man and one woman. God created in a particular order, and after creating each thing, the author of Genesis repeats the refrain, and it was good. But when commentating on Adam's state, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. And God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Of all the animals that Adam named, there was none with whom Adam could fully relate. So God then creates Eve from the rib of Adam. And once he created her, he brought her to Adam. And Adam says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And then we hear the first instruction from God about marriage. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, in God's perfect design, He created for Adam a partner, a wife, who was uniquely designed for him. She was taken out of him and crafted for him. And in the act and consummation of marriage, their two separate bodies became one flesh. So then, adultery, or any polygamy, 
for that matter, is an act against the unity that was created in marriage. So because God had so designed men and women in such complementary and unique roles, it is only right for marriage to be between one man and one woman. Secondly, in creation, God gives a very particular command to the first man and woman. Be fruitful and multiply. So then, a purpose of marriage, then, in most cases, is relationship in which offspring will be produced. If God had sent Adam another man, this command could not have been fulfilled. Only a man and woman, whom God has uniquely designed for one another, can fulfill this command. Now this, of course, is not the only purpose of marriage. Not every married couple is able to have children, nor is producing offspring the only purpose for marriage or sex. But in defining marriage, we see that God created a relationship in which the conceiving of children and the multiplying of those who are created in God's image and will worship and glorify Him will happen. So having given a basic defense of God's design for marriage as a one-man, one-woman relationship, let's consider one last reason why this isn't an arbitrary command before looking at the various applications of this command. And that is that the command for a man and wife to be faithful to each other within the context of marriage is based on God's faithfulness. When God decided what was right or wrong in all contexts, He did not arbitrarily decide what's right and what's wrong. Neither did He look to a moral code outside of Himself. Therefore, the, the option that is that God determined what is right and wrong based on His own character. So the command for faithfulness in marriages is based on God's faithfulness to His people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9 attests to the faithfulness of God. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Therefore, in that marriage is an institution designed by God, He has designed it to reflect His faithfulness by commanding spouses to be faithful to one another. Jesus expands on this command in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In saying this, Jesus reveals that the commandment goes beyond prohibiting only physical sexual infidelity within marriage, but instead warns against even adultery of the heart. Because he has done this, the audience for this command, you shall not commit adultery, is now extended to all believers, not just those who are married. Just as the command, you shall not murder, is implicitly saying, do all that you can to preserve innocent human life, the command, you shall not commit adultery, is saying to us, do all that you can to preserve purity and the sanctity of marriage. And along these lines, we can see other commands in God's Word that prohibit sexual immorality of all kinds as an echo then of this command. In Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus once again makes a connection between the heart of a believer and all sexual sin. He says, For, with, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The word that Jesus uses there to describe sexual immorality is the word porneia. It is the word in which we get the English word for pornography, and it is used in the Greek to describe practically all immoral sexual practices, premarital sex, pornography, homosexuality, adultery, just to name a few. Each of these, then, is an attack against the design that God has made for marriage. Because sex is perhaps the most powerful and intimate display of affection and love, the limits that God has placed on intimate relationships, then, are for our own good. To use what God intended for marriage outside of marriage is dangerous. I once heard it put this way. If you bought a chainsaw, because of the power that it has, you would be wise to read the instructions before operating it, especially if you had no prior experience in operating a chainsaw. Otherwise, you could hurt yourself and potentially even cut off something like your leg. The same is true with sex. God has given us instructions for it, and to ignore those is dangerous. And because adultery then has been defined as more than just a singular act of infidelity against one's spouse, and because it includes other forms of sexual immorality such as pornography, premarital sex, and even lust, we all have to admit that we have in some way broken the seventh commandment. How then do we avoid the temptation of adultery in all its forms? First and foremost, it starts with humility. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So it seems that these texts implies that where we feel most comfortable, the sins that we think we would never fall into, those are the ones in which we are most likely to fall. Secondly, avoiding these types of sins takes a particular level of discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The idea of fleeing from sexual immorality implies a particular activeness to it. We must be intentional about avoiding adultery and all sexual immorality. I had a close friend of mine who in college struggled very heavily with the use of pornography. The ease of access to it made it difficult for him to avoid, but he was tired of falling time and time again into that sin. So he went to his college pastor and had the pastor put parental controls on his iPhone that made it impossible for him to access any inappropriate sites. And in doing so, he was fleeing from sin and asking his pastor to hold him accountable to that sin. This is what I mean when I say that it takes discipline to avoid this sin. It takes a sense of activeness to avoid this particular um, kind of sin. For those of us who are married, we must actively avoid any inappropriate relationship with someone of the opposite sex. The age of social media makes this all the more important. There are, of course, work-related reasons why someone would have to communicate with someone of the opposite sex over text or email or other reasons in general, but nothing should be kept private between husband and wife. Because the truth is that adultery is a slow fade. 
I don't think any Christian man or woman wakes up one morning and just decides that they're going to cheat on their spouse. Instead, it begins as something seemingly innocent and slowly but surely transforms into something that someone would never have imagined themselves doing. So to flee from these sins takes discipline and it takes intentionality, but above all, it takes grace. We need to pray often that God would protect us from adultery and other sexual immorality. A pastor by the name of Francis Chan used to pray early on in his marriage that God would kill him before he would let him cheat on his wife. While I'm not necessarily commending that as a biblical prayer, it does show how seriously he viewed this sin. And it shows how seriously he knew his own sin. He knew that even as a Christian, he was able to do such a horrendous thing. Perhaps a more biblical prayer then would be to pray that God would show you the disgustingness of adultery. Just after Jesus warns against adultery of the heart, he says in Matthew 5:29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Other versions use the word gouge instead of tear. So then imagine this image of gouging your own eye out and throwing it in the garbage. If you cringed at the thought, then good. Take the same thought and apply it to the thought of adultery. Associate the thought of gouging your eye out, and hell for that matter, with the thought of being unfaithful to your spouse, or with the thought of any other sexual sin that you might struggle with. Doing this might help us to see adultery and other sexual immorality for the revolting action that it is. And if we think about it, the act of adultery and other sexual immorality truly is disgusting. Above all, it's an act against God, but as we read earlier, it's a sin against our own body. For example, pornography damages the brain. It desensitizes intimacy and objectifies women. It harms future intimate relationships. Modern science is just now figuring out the negative effects that pornography has on our bodies, which is something that God's Word has spoken long ago. When adultery then enters the context of marriage, though, the consequences increase exponentially. The effects of adultery in marriage is nothing less than detrimental. The vow made before God and family to forsake all others has been thrown away. The damage created by infidelity seems to be multiplied when there are children in the family. Of course, because not only was the spouse's trust broken, but also the trust of the children. Furthermore, if the unfaithful partner is a Christian, then the church too has been shamed and could even be divided because of the infidelity as well. The effects of adultery are so damaging to the marriage relationship that when Jesus teaches on divorce, the only allowable circumstance for divorce is when there has been sexual immorality. Even then, divorce is not required, but is only allowed. When the offender is willing to repent and the spouse is able to forgive the other, the gospel is then put on display in a remarkable way. Sadly, though, because of the seriousness of this sin, because of the brokenness that it causes, it seems that this is rarely the case. Adultery within marriage typically leads to divorce. Why does it seem that so many otherwise faithful Christians fall into this temptation? And even among pastors, why is it that when there is a moral failure that causes a pastor to step down from the ministry, it seems that this particular sin is the reason above all others? Likely, 
because when used according to God's plan, marriage and intimacy are perhaps one of the greatest gifts that God gives to married people. It's no wonder then that Satan also seeks to corrupt marriage and sex, to twist them for his own use. For this reason, we have to be more careful and more earnest in our prayers for this particular sin than perhaps any other. For those in marriage, humbly pray that God would remove any illicit desires from your heart. Be active in fleeing from sin. Ask God to make the thought of adultery or even lust absolutely disgusting to you. If you're not married, you're not out of the woods either. As we have seen, there are still ways in which the seventh command applies to you particularly through what Jesus said about adultery of the heart. So pray that God would also protect you from any wayward thought or deed as well. Let me finish with a prayer from God's Word, a prayer that we quote often at our church, a prayer that speaks honestly about our sin and confesses it before God, a prayer that asks God to make us new. Psalm chapter 51, I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.